Section 18 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 5, Part 3. The same day that Queen Henrietta Maria died, her corpse remained as if she slept in her bed, and all persons were admitted to see it there. The next day her body was embalmed, and laid in state in the Hall of Cologne. At eleven o'clock the same night, the household at Cologne, headed by the Grand Almoner Montague, went in procession from the chateau, bearing the heart of their deceased queen to her convent at Chalot. It was received with solemn ceremonial by the abbess and her nuns. A manuscript, till now inedited, in the archives of France, gives the following account of the respect with which the ladies of the visitation received the heart of their foundress. It is written by one of the nuns. It had ever been the intention of Her Majesty to come to us, when her declining health warned her that she must shortly endure the sharpness of death, which she did not wish should surprise her in the routine of worldly existence, but God willed it otherwise, having permitted a remedy, which it was hoped would cure her, to cut short her life in her sixty-first year. Divine providence had spared her the long agonies of a lingering death, of which she had a natural fear. She had not the time to mark her intentions towards us by her last will. She had intended to make our church the depository of her royal heart and body likewise. She likewise intended to demise to us certain goods for our benefit. Nevertheless, although her sudden death had prevented these intentions, she had previously, on many occasions, proved a most beneficent foundress, and had deserved our grateful remembrance at a time when we were in a very destitute state. Although we possess not the body, we have what we esteem very precious. This is the heart of this great queen. At eleven o'clock at night, this dear heart was delivered to us by Monsieur Montague, accompanied by the whole household of Her Majesty. Our sisterhood received it in its urn, at the gate of our cloister, and bore it in procession to our church, which was hung with black. These hangings were encircled by three bands of black velvet, charged with escutcheons of the defunct queen. The miserere was chanted by the full choir. A platform of three steps were raised, on which was placed a credence, to receive the royal heart of our beloved foundress. Round this were placed wax lights. Monsieur Le Grand Almoner said the prayers, to which we all responded. Then he addressed himself to our very honored mother and superior, Anne-Marie Collin, in these words. My mother, behold here the heart of the princess Henrietta Marie of France, daughter of Henry the Great, wife of Charles I, mother of Charles II, at present reigning in England, aunt to Louis Fourteenth. All these temporal grandeurs were not equal to the virtues of her soul, on which I need not dwell in particular, because you knew her so well. The affection that this great queen always cherished for you has caused you to be chosen as the guardians of this precious deposit, which I am certain you will carefully retain, and will not cease your prayers for the repose of her soul. To this our good mother made reply. With my mind absorbed in grief, I render the very humble thanks of our convent to the king and to monsieur and madame for having confided to us so valued a treasure, which alone can console us for the loss we have sustained in the death of this great queen. We will never remit our prayers for her repose as the sole means we have of showing our gratitude to her. 
After everyone had withdrawn, we said the prayers for the dead, and when we had sprinkled holy water, we retired. The corpse of Henrietta was likewise carried, for lying in state, from Cologne to the convent at Chalot. Her coffin was placed on a mourning car, attended by her Lord Almoner Montague and the Duchess of Richmond, her principal English lady of honor, and by Madame du Plessis, her principal French lady. The guards already described, followed and preceded the royal corpse, which was likewise attended by the coaches of the Queen of France and the Duchess of Orléans, with all the officers of their household. The body was thus escorted to Chalot, and was received with much tender reverence by the nuns, to whom she had been the benefactress. Her heart was, on the 10th of September, placed in a silver vessel, whereon was written her name and titles in Latin, to the following effect. Henrietta Maria, Queen of England, France, Scotland, and Ireland, daughter to the French King, Henry IV the Victorious, wife of Charles I the Martyr, and mother of the restored King, Charles II. The funeral took place on the 12th of September. The place of sepulchre of Queen Henrietta was with her royal ancestors at the magnificent Abbey of St. Denis, near Paris. The procession commenced from Chalot an hour after dark. All the guards of the deceased queen carried torches, and a hundred pages, sent by the Queen of France, bore each a lighted flambeau. The niece of the deceased queen, Mademoiselle de Montpensier, followed as chief mourner, assisted by the Duchess of Guise. All the ladies and gentlemen of the royal household at Cologne followed in the deepest mourning. The monks and chapter of the Abbey of St. Denis, carrying lighted tapers, received the royal corpse at their door, and when it was consigned to them, the grand almoner, Montague, made them an oration in Latin, which was answered by the prior. The abbey of St. Denis was hung with black, and fully illuminated, for the funeral service. No monument or tablet exists in the memory of the queen at St. Denis that we could discover when we visited the royal tombs in the crypt of that magnificent structure, this last summer, 1844. When the bones of her ancestors were exhumed by the French Republicans, robbed of their leaden coffins, and flung into a common trench, behind the Abbey of St. Denis, the remains of Henrietta Maria doubtless shared the same fate. Forty days after the death of Queen Henrietta, a still grander service was performed to her memory to soothe the grief of her favorite daughter, Henrietta of England, Duchess of Orléans, by her grateful nuns of Chalot. The princess came with her husband to this ceremony, which was far more distinguished by the eloquence of Bossuet than by all the funeral pomps that Rome could devise. All the choir of the chapel at Chalot were hung with black, and in the midst was a platform of four steps, and a bier covered with a black velvet pall. At the corners, worked in gold, were Queen Henrietta's armorial bearings, and laid thereupon, under a stately canopy, was a wax effigy exactly resembling her. The Duke and Duchess of Orléans, having taken their places, Montague, the almoner of her late majesty, officiated at the service, and then all eyes were fixed on Beausoleil, who proceeded to deliver that grand historical oration on the varied scenes of Henrietta's life, which at once gave him the reputation he has since maintained as the first orator of modern times. Much of this sermon would be displeasing to anyone but a Roman Catholic, but the genius of Beausoleil is more talked of in England than known, which must plead our excuse for the following attempt to give the reader an idea of the view taken by this great man of the historical events of the life of his royal countrywoman. 
Nine voyages, said Bossuet, were undertaken by our great Henrietta in the course of her life. The English rebels, it is well known, had seized the arsenals and magazines of the king, her husband. He had soldiers, but not wherewithal to arm them. She abandoned her pleasures and her palaces for the sake of her lord, and not only parted from her jewels, but even cared not for her life. She put to sea in the midst of February, regardless of waves and tempests, for the ostensible purpose of conducting to Holland her eldest daughter, who had espoused the Prince of Orange. Her real object was to engage the states of Holland in the interests of the king. She gained them, gained their officers, and obtained supplies and artillery and ammunition. The storms of winter had not prevented her from embarking on this errand. The storms of winter did not hinder her return to the king when she had gained her object. Her homeward voyage was, however, beset with difficulties and accidents. The dreadful tempest which tossed her fleet for ten days is beyond my power to describe. The mariners, at length, lost all presence of mind and stood aghast. Some threw themselves in the sea, preferring instant death to further toils. The queen, nevertheless, remained intrepid. And the higher the waves raged, the more she reassured everyone around her by her firmness, and to avert from their minds the fatal ideas of death which presented itself on all sides, she said, Queens have never been drowned. Alas, she was reserved to suffer a fate still more extraordinary. She saw vessels perish around her, but the admiral's ship in which she was embarked was sustained by the hand of him who rules over the mighty deep and who can bridle its insurgent billows. The vessel was thrown back on the coast of Holland, and everyone was astonished at her signal deliverance. Those who escape from shipwreck, says an ancient author, are sure to bid an eternal adieu to the sea. Nay, they can never again abide the sight of it. Yet with astonishing perseverance, the queen, in the short space of eleven days, again committed herself to the mercy of the ocean, and in the utmost rigor of winter. She was impelled to this extraordinary exertion by her earnest desire of beholding her husband once more, and leading to him the succor she had obtained. She gathered together the transports which had escaped the tempest, and finally landed on the coast of England. Scarcely had she touched the shore, when a hundred pieces of cannon thundered on the house where she rested after the fatigues of her voyage, and shattered it with their balls. Yet she retained her intrepidity in the midst of this frightful peril, and her clemency did not fail when the author of this black attempt fell in her power. Some time after, he was taken prisoner and destined to the executioner, but she pardoned him his crime against her, dooming him solely to the punishment of his conscience, and the shame of having attempted the life of a princess, too kind and merciful to take his, even after such provocation. This incident is only found in this oration, and in the preceding memoir of Henrietta, where it is more circumstantially related. It is in close accordance with the character and disposition of Henri Cotte, her glorious father, whom our Henrietta closely resembled, as her countrymen declared, in person as well as disposition. The narrow bigotry in which she was reared marred the popularity which must infallibly have attended this fine disposition, always so attractive in England. The prejudices of the people were offended at every turn, with a thousand troublesome teasing ritual observances, which they, with equal bigotry, were brought to look upon as enormous crimes. Thus Henrietta's virtues and grand actions were either viewed invidiously or passed over in silence. 
the Church of England historians, although agreeing as to religion in so many main points with the essentials of her faith, could not forgive the troubles her attachment to the Church of Rome had brought on their king and party. Therefore they are equally her enemies with the Puritans, and their narratives are more prejudicial to her because the truth is expected from them. The French historians alone preserve the facts that redound to her credit. Bossuet rapidly traces her progress to the Midland counties and the effects that her heroism had on the people. It was into her hands that the governor of Scarborough rendered that port with its impregnable castle. The two Hothams, father and son, who had given the first example of perfidy, refusing to the king in person admittance to his port and arsenal of Hull, now chose the queen for their mediatrix and prepared to surrender to the king that place, together with that of Beverly, but they were prevented and decapitated by their own party, for God punished their disobedience by the hands of the rebels, whom they had served so signally. Our great Henrietta marched as a general, at the head of her royal army. She traversed triumphantly the provinces hitherto entirely held by the rebels. She besieged a considerable town, which obstructed her march. She conquered, she pardoned, and finally met her monarch, on the ground where he had previously gained his signal victory over the Earl of Essex. One hour after the reunion of this happy pair, they received the tidings of another victory gained by the king's party over the rebels. All seemed to prosper in the presence of Henrietta, and had her advice been taken, and had the king marched direct to London instead of dividing his forces, and wasting their time and dissipating their strength, at the unsuccessful sieges of Hull and Gloucester, that campaign had seen the end of the war. On that pivot, the fortune of the royal cause turned. From that fatal moment, all was disaster and decadence. The queen's situation obliged her to retire from Oxford, which was besieged by the rebels. The royal pair bade each other another adieu, sad enough, although neither supposed it was to prove their last. Her majesty retired to Exeter, there she gave birth to a daughter, but in less than twelve days, she was forced to leave the infant princess and seek refuge in France. We must remember that it was before this princess, the Duchess of Orléans, that Bossuet was speaking the words we are here quoting, and when he arrived at this passage, he broke into one of those impassioned bursts of eloquence, which stamped his fame as an orator forever. And here we depict a trait of the manners of the past, an address of the kind in present times to a royal mourner at the funeral sermon of her parent would entrench on modern reserves and etiquettes most strangely. Society was not civilized into that conventional smoothness which is ruffled by such bold bursts of original genius, and therefore avoids or suppresses them. The effect must have been grand when Bossuet diverged from his oration on the dead mother thus to address the daughter. Princess, whose destiny is so great and glorious, are you then in your first dawn of being rendered a captive to the enemies of your royal house? O oh, eternal, watch over her. Holy angels, rank around her cradle, your invisible squadrons, for she is destined to our valiant Philippe, of all the princes of France, most worthy of her, as she is most worthy of him. Gentlemen of France, God did in truth protect her. Lady Morton, two years afterwards, drew this precious infant from the hands of the rebels. Unconscious of her captivity, but feeling her high birth, too powerfully to submit to conceal it, the royal child refused to own any name or rank but her own, and persisted that she was no other than the princess. 
At last, she was brought to the arms of her mother, to console her for all her sorrows, and finally to contribute to the happiness of a great prince. But I am diverging from the course of my history. I have already said that the queen was forced to retire from the kingdom of England. In fact, her vessel left port in the full view of the ships of the rebels. They pursued her and came so near that she actually heard the cries of the seamen and could distinguish their insolent menaces. Oh, how different from her first voyage on the same sea, when she went to take possession of the scepter of Great Britain, when for the first time she felt the waters heave under her and submit their proud waves to her, the ocean queen. Now chased, pursued by her implacable enemies, one moment lost, the next saved, fortune changing its aspect every quarter of an hour, having no support but God, and her own indomitable courage, she at last arrived at Brest, and there suffered to respire a while from her troubles. God left no resource to her royal husband. The Scotch, though faithful guards to our monarchs, betrayed their own, and sold him to the Parliament. The Parliament, feeling the evils of military despotism, would dismiss the army, but the army, declaring itself independent, expelled the Parliament by violence. The king was, in these commotions, led from captivity to captivity. His queen in vain moved France, Holland, and even Poland and the distant north, to rescue him, and she reanimated the Scotch, and found the means of arming thirty thousand of them in his behalf. She concocted an enterprise with the Duke of Lorraine, for his deliverance, the success of which promised, at least, to be complete. She really succeeded in withdrawing her dear children from captivity, and confessed that, among her mortal sorrows, she felt on this occasion she was capable of joy. She could do no more. She, at least, consoled her royal lord perpetually by her letters. He wrote to her from his prison that she alone supported his mind, and that he could submit to all degradations when he remembered that she belonged to him and was unalienably his own. O oh, wife, O oh, mother, O oh, queen, incomparable and deserving a better fortune. After all her struggles, there was nothing left but to resign herself to the inevitable. Yet like some grand column, she stood firm amidst the ruins round her. But who can express her just grief? Who can recount her sorrows? No, gentlemen of France, my words cannot paint them. The prophet who sat alone amidst the ruins of Jerusalem can alone lament as she lamented. Truly might she say with Jeremiah, Behold, Lord, my affliction, my enemies fortify themselves, and my children are lost. The cruel one has put his sacrilegious hand on all that is dear to me. Royalty is profaned, princes are trodden under foot. Leave me to weep bitterly, for I cannot be comforted. Charles, says Bossuet, was just, temperate, magnanimous, well-informed regarding his affairs and the science of governing. Never prince was more capable of rendering royalty not only respected, but amiable and dear to a people. He could be reproached with nothing but with too great a degree of clemency. This illustrious defect of Charles was likewise that of Caesar himself, but those who expected to see the English monarch succumb under the weight of misfortune were astonished when they experienced his valor in battle and his strength of intellect in counsel. Pursued to the utmost by the implacable malignity of his enemies, betrayed by his own people, he never lost himself. The result of the contest might be against him. His foes found that, although they might crush him, they could never bend him. A pang seizes me when I contemplate the great heart in its last trials, 
but assuredly he showed himself no less a king when facing his rebels in Westminster Hall and on the scaffold in Whitehall than when he confronted them at the head of his armies. They saw him august and majestic in that woeful time as when he was in the midst of his court. Great queen, well do I know that I fulfill the most tender wishes of your heart when I celebrate your monarch. That heart which never beat but for him, is it not ready to vibrate, though cold in the dust, and to stir at the sound of the name of a spouse so dear, though veiled under the mortuary pall? The hearers of Bossuet could not have believed the story of Henrietta's second marriage, or surely they would have blamed him for this passage, instead of praising him to the skies. At this point of his oration, Bossuet addressed himself to the nuns of Chalot, who were assisting at the funeral of their benefactress. But after she had listened to your consolations, holy maidens, you, her inestimable friends, for so in life she often called you, after you had led her to sigh before the altar of her only protector, then, then she could confide to you the consolations she received from on high, and you can recount her Christian progress, for you have been faithful witnesses. How many times has she returned thanks to God? For what? My hearers ask you, for having restored her son? No, but for having rendered her la reine malarousse. Ah, I regret the narrow boundaries of the place where I speak. My voice ought to resound to the ends of the wide earth. I would make every ear to hear that her griefs had made her learned in the science of salvation and the efficacy of the cross, when all Christendom were united in sympathy for her unexampled sorrows. After this ceremony, the Duke of Orléans placed the Abbe Montague, grand almoner of his deceased aunt, at the head of the ecclesiastical establishment in his household. The Duchess of Orléans received her mother's aged friend, Père Cyprian Gamache, as her almoner, but the old man did not long survive his patroness. His well-known characters soon cease from the yellow pages of his journal, and another hand takes the pen. The continuator of the manuscript observes, when describing the general mourning, ordered through France by Louis the Fourteenth on the death of his aunt. Our country did not merely recognize the decease of a queen of England in the loss of this princess, but that of the last surviving child of her great Henry as a daughter of France, sweet, familiar, obliging, and doing good to all around her, and manifesting those great qualities which win all hearts. Our king ordered all the rites of her interment and obsequies at St. Denis to be conducted with the utmost pomp of royalty, and the expenses were discharged at his cost. There is a manuscript among the archives of France, the contents of which have been partly quoted when they occurred in chronological order. It was evidently written under the direction of the abbess of Chalot for the assistance of Bossuet when he composed his funeral oration. He has availed himself of its contents in many passages which he knew would be edifying to his auditory, but which we omit as displeasing not only to the Reformed Church, but to the English readers in general, the composition is simple and innocent. The French spelled in an illiterate manner. Nevertheless, it preserves a few anecdotes of interest, which are illustrative of the private character of the queen. She founded our convent in July 1651, at a time when she was under a very heavy pressure of grief. Her husband's murder had previously caused her deep and enduring sorrow. At first, she was overwhelmed with despair. 
By degrees, her mind returned to God, but she could not resign herself to his will till she had many times offered up this origin. Lord God, thou hast permitted it, therefore I will submit myself with all my strength. Conversing with us in her most private hours, she declared that she had found this aspiration efficacious in producing resignation even on occasions the most excruciating. And these, she added mournfully, came very frequently. For since the last twenty years I have not passed one day, but what has brought much trouble. She once told our very honored mother, the Abbess de Lafayette, speaking of the health of her soul, that she often returned thanks to God, that as he had called her to the state of royalty, that he had made her a Christian, and consequently an unfortunate queen, for, she added, that queens in a state of prosperity are too much tempted to forget his ordinances. Here we trace one of the most striking perorations of Bossuet's discourse. Among the practical virtues of Henrietta, the good nun very properly recognizes the interest she felt in the welfare of her domestics, and the pains she took to reconcile any differences that arose among them. The frequent consultations she held, if any unhappiness or ill fortune befell them. Any other queen who was less sweet-tempered, says another fragment manuscript in the Hotel de Subis, would have been wholly deserted when she was reduced to such distress at the time of the fronde, but the privations that her lowest servants endured before they quitted her for a short time in search of food were astonishing. Our dear queen, they said, shares them with us, and what is enough for her is so for us from which we gather that the daughter of Henri Cotte inherited the true heroism which led her to reject all indulgences which she could not share with her suffering household. If they had fire, she warmed her shivering limbs. If they had none, she went without. If they had food, she broke her fast. If they had none, she starved with them. Consideration for the feelings of others marked her conduct, resumes her friend the abbess. She never took advantage of her power as our foundress to fill our quiet cloisters with noisy and irreverent persons of her court. When she came, she only brought one of her ladies and two or three quiet female servants. So particular was she in preventing unhallowed intrusion that one day when she came to see us and she was too ill to walk and was obliged to be carried from her coach, she sent in first to know if we had any objection to permit her bearers to enter our court. These little traits prove that Queen Henrietta had the manners in private life of a perfect gentlewoman. We have since said mass in remembrance of her majesty, continues the manuscript, on the 10th of every month, which we shall continue all round the year, and on the anniversary of her death, we devote to her memory all possible marks of our respectful gratitude. Henrietta died intestate, but thanks to the careful liquidation of her expenditure every week, she was not in debt. Her nephew, Louis the Fourteenth, according to a law of France then in force, was heir to all her effects as an intestate person. Against this proceeding, Charles the Second remonstrated by the agency of Sir Lyolin Jenkin, doctor of laws, a document among the archives of France states that, November 6, 1669. The King of France gave permission to the ambassador from England, to Abbe Montague, to Count Arenberg, equerry to the deceased queen, and to Le Docteur Jenquin, 
to enter into the abbey of the visitation of Chalot, when it pleased them, to make an inventory of the effects that Queen Henrietta had left there. An inventory of the furniture of her reserved apartments in the convent is extant. It is simple and homely. The abbess of the convent delivered a wrought silver casket, which the queen had left in her care, to Ab Montague, who took possession of it for Charles II. A few days afterwards, the visitors returned again, and presented to the convent, in the name of that king, the furniture which belonged to his mother. At the importunity of his sister Henrietta, he bestowed a more solid reward on the community of Chalot for their attention to his mother's remains. There is written the following memorandum on a little yellow scrap of paper, torn off some printed circular of a sermon preached in 1670 and pinned on the nun's manuscript we have recently quoted. When Henrietta, Duchess of Orléans, went to visit her brother in England, His Majesty Charles II gave her for us 2,000 gold Jacobuses, worth 26,000 francs, for the purpose of building a chapel to put therein the precious heart of our beloved queen. Of this sum, we have received half. May our Lord recompense those who have done this, and give repose to our illustrious queen and founder. Dieu soit béni. The king of France sent the Count de Saint-Aignan, first gentleman of his bedchamber, to condole with Charles II on the death of his mother. A general mourning was ordered for her throughout England, and the people vied with each other in testifying respect to her memory. This court mourning must have been of an extraordinary length, for according to a passage in the memoirs of Mademoiselle de Montpensier, Henrietta, Duchess of Orléans, on her return from England, six months afterwards, expressed her satisfaction to that princess that the respect paid by the English to the memory of the late queen, her mother, for she found the people as well as the whole court in the deepest mourning. This visit, continued Mademoiselle, renewed the grief of my cousin, the Duchess of Orléans, for her mother. She felt her loss severely at this particular time, since she always had relied on Queen Henrietta to reconcile her with her husband, as she usually lived on uneasy terms with him. Whenever she spoke of her mother, after her return to France, she was ready to weep, and had some trouble to restrain her tears. More than once, I saw them ready to fall. This was but a few days before the sudden death of the beautiful Henrietta, Duchess of Orléans. She only survived a few months the parent, whose loss she still mourned, and whose maternal friendship she so much needed. She died June fifteenth, 1670. The story that she was poisoned is too deeply rooted to be easily eradicated. Her cousin, Mademoiselle de Montpensier, declares that she died of cholera morbus. Henrietta, Duchess of Orléans, was the only daughter who survived Queen Henrietta out of five. Of her three sons, Charles II and James, Duke of York only, were alive at the time of her death. She was mother to two monarchs of Great Britain and grandmother to three to the Queen of Spain and a Dauphiness of France. Verses and elegies, both Latin and English, were written in such profusion to the memory of Queen Henrietta that a large volume might be filled with them. The best of these elegiac tributes is the following. Great Queen of cares and crosses, tossed and hurled through all the changes of a guilty world, a queen to kings and emperors allied, great Henry's daughter and blessed Charles' bride, Yet did the envious thistle interpose, twixt her French lilies and our English rose. 
Bless, Queen, thy mind maintain so calm a state, as crown thee sovereign of thyself and fate. Angels now sing to thee their airs divine, and join in an applause as vast as thine, who claim the garland by the matchless life of a dear mother and a faultless wife, and having gained it meekly, now layest down an earthly diadem for a heavenly crown. And you, dear queen, one grateful subject leave, who, what he owed your life, has paid your grave. End of section 18